Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast, formerly known as the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the CEO of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives and artists working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Okay, well, I have an awesome conversation here today, guys. I'm really, really excited about it. I've got Seth Nash, who's a character artist and been doing this for a really long time. And there's a lot of cool things for us to kind of dive into. But why don't we start with a little bit of your background? Just because I really like to unpack what you did, how you got here. And you've been in this industry for, what, over a decade? It's getting to a decade, actually. I've been like a professional creative now for like 20 yeah. years. But I segued into digital around about who 2009-2010. Okay, awesome. All right, so how'd you get into this? Where'd you start? So okay, I suppose really you've got to start. I was a traditional sculptor for the longest time. Miniatures, right? Yeah, I started off with Games Workshop. Once a long time ago, I was like 18 years old and had no marketable skills. So I started painting miniatures and got a job at a local games workshop. And then from there, I moved to their head office and I was a figure painter for them and realized people made more money sculpting than they did painting. So I learned that. Fast forward about nine or 10 years. By this point, I've been several countries. I, I worked for Rackham in France. I worked for a company in New Zealand. And I realized that everything was going digital. It was, oh, good God. First time, I think, was when we saw, do you remember the ZBrush 2 Anglerfish demo? Uh-huh, totally. Oh, man. That blew out my mind, honestly. Yeah. The idea of you having symmetry on a sculpt, and it was like, wait, they masked the little teeth out and pulled them through? So, <laughs> oh, that's right, that's right. Honestly, as a traditional sculpt, that just blew my mind, because previous to that, you were like, yeah, okay, teeth is going to take you like three or four hours. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Pixelator, I think, just like, yeah, masked out the gums and just pulled the teeth straight through in like 30 seconds, and I was like, that's not fair. That's not right. Yeah, so, yeah that was over. Wow. Dude, see, at the time, I didn't even know who these people were. I was just like, oh, that's really clever. I will never understand it. Mm -hmm. I am too much of a simple creature for that. So about 2009, I actually went back to university for a year, learned all the tools I needed. 2010, realized that university wasn't really for me because I was an old man. I was like 33, 34 by this point and uh, couldn't afford to stay there much longer. So I ended up with my first job at uh, Eurocom as a characterized, which was purely accidental. I applied for a regular character art position. And I got there and the guys were like, mate, we're sorry, you're way too junior. It was a guy called Steve Gratton, who's an amazing artist. I think he's over at Sumo now, actually. I was like, okay, I'm not going to get the job. What can I do to my portfolio to change it? Because I had two industry guys sitting right in front of me. Uh, so I asked them and they were like, right, change that, drop that, get rid of that, move that to the back because that's one of your worst pieces. <laughs> so I went home that night and did it. And for some reason, Steve checked. The next day I got an email. He's like, well, you're not very good yet, but you follow instruction. Let's give you a shot. And that's really how I got it. <laughs> I love that. Literally, yeah. It was just a case of, yeah, like seizing the opportunity to get some industry feedback on what I was doing. Yeah. The rest, as they say, is terrifying. Um, from there, I ended up at Splash Damage. That was an interesting one. I ended up with that job basically through the interview was on a Friday. And this was just after they'd shipped Brink. And Splash was known for being the sort of like art powerhouse. And it was kind of a growl studio kind of event. They had Tim Appleby there, Ben Davis, Mop, John Fletcher. Seriously, seriously good artists. Vincent Joel. So I interviewed on the Friday. And they were like, mate, you can't texture to save your life, can you? And to be honest with you, I couldn't. I was, my texturing was bloody awful. <laughs> so I went home that weekend. I got on the train back up to Nottingham. It was like a two-hour journey. And during that time, I formulated a plan that if there was any chance I wanted to see the inside of that studio ever again, I had to prove that I could color in. So I, I locked myself in a room for the weekend. And 36 hours later, I had this pair of trousers, <laughs> nothing else, just a pair of trousers, but they were fully done, game res, textured, sculpted. And I sent them an email and said, I've done this. And they were like, yeah, you're not very good, but at least you're determined. Go on, then we'll give you a job. <laughs> so a lot of my career has been you're not great but at least you try come on let's give you a go <laughs> I love that. so where are you working now most recently i was over at elite 3d in valencia but just recently i've gone back to to freelance while i transitioned elite 3d i think i've interviewed one person there before and i got several of my students that want to work there How, how's valencia valencia is an awesome city and it's really cheap which is very nice 
except for the beer, because the beer's really cheap, which is not good for my waistline. Seriously, man. Oh, <laughs> it's a bit disastrous. But yeah, it's got a really good street art community as well. There's a lot of really good graffiti and street artists and a lot of conceptual art going on. Game art-wise, Elite's awesome. I think they've got nearly 16 projects they work on now. They've grown to a team of about 140 artists, and they're oh, really like artist-centric as well. That's amazing. That's huge. They've done amazingly well. I've got to admit. You've moved around a ton. Unfortunately, yes. It's both a bonus and detrimental. Bonus because I've worked with most game engines now, and I know their pitfalls, and I know what's good, and I know what's bad, and I've worked on customization systems and open-world games and first-person shooters. Um, bad because on your resume, it looks like you can't hack it. <laughs> mm which is a terrible thing to say, but I, I didn't start in this industry until I hit 35. And this is my default fallback argument, is that I didn't really have the chance of having my 20s to find out where I belonged. So right. I've had to very quickly be, okay, is this the place for me? Yes or no. I consider like a probation period. A lot of people are like, it's the studio checking you out, but I think it's important that you check the studio out as well and make sure it's ticking the boxes you want in either the tasks you're getting, your work-life balance, is the team awesome? Are you throwing more at the studio than the studio is throwing back at you? Which can be a serious issue, especially early on in your career. Like when you're junior or regular, you find yourself doing some really excessively stupid things, and a lot of the time the studio doesn't seem to reciprocate that kind of level of loyalty. Mm -hmm. Being old and slightly stupid, I've cut and run sometimes just because it's like, okay, this isn't working out. I need to move on. Other times, though, like I had to leave. I got an 01 for America, but I had to leave there because our son was with us and he was 21. Mm -hmm. And at 21, he can no longer be an 03, so we had to shuffle out of America, which was a shame, but wow. it, is what it is. What are you looking for in terms of a work-life balance in a studio? I think I've reached the age and the position where I like to define rather than inherit pipelines. There comes a point where... As an artist, you kind of know a few best practices and you kind of know what you like and you know what works. And sometimes when you inherit a pipeline, it could be documentation or it could be a game dev cycle that's like two or three years old already. Especially if you end up doing live ops for a game, if you're doing supplemental or live development, then usually the pipeline that you'll be working on was set in stone about two and a half years ago. And so that can become very, not necessarily frustrating, but it can just continue into a workflow that's not pushing your skills. I think sometimes with the, the speed and the pace that game development is moving at nowadays, I mean, three years ago, who knew what Substance Painter was, really? So it's, it's at the stage where I'm like, I like to remain current, and I like my pipeline to be current. So really, that's what I kind of look for. I look for, okay, how can I help enrich a pipeline? How can I help throw my experience into moving this forward? Hmm. You know, one of the dilemmas I think that's important for us to talk about is this idea of pushing your skills and you working as an artist versus just producing work and having a job. And one of the situations, for example, one of my students got a great job and, you know, great job on paper, got the job and realized it was a lot of art management and scan cleanup and cleaning up other people's works. So wasn't necessarily happy with that job anymore. Totally changed his perspective on it. It took a while for him to figure out, but ultimately then he moved to another studio. So, you know, I get what you're saying about pushing your skill and wanting to be there. But at the same time, the studios, like, you know, there is this conflict between these two things, right? Very much so. And I think that's becoming almost one of the curses of modern game development is that everything has become, for want of a better word, procedural. A lot of my work is like realism or realism based. Yeah. And, and the scan pipeline is very much you follow a procedure. It's like if I, I know that if I do X, Y and Z in Substance Painter, I will have a material that looks exactly like fabric. I have a bunch of detail maps that I know I can use and turn to every time. And the trick becomes, okay, once you've done that the 20th time, how exactly do you push your skills? How do you develop further as an artist? How do you evolve? In scan pipelines in particular, that's like really difficult because obviously everything's there already. Recently, there was the whole King Arthur challenge, the awesome stylized work one. And somebody who maybe was more into the realistic stuff questioned why that one, and then they picked up a whole debate between stylized and realism. And stylized is really hard. But I think a lot of people don't realize that realism is really hard as well, because a lot of the time when we get scans, we don't just deal with the scan data. There's a lot of massaging and the manipulation 
to make that thing look heroic or look cinematic or look really cool. And there's a lot of re-sculpting and removing of creases and, you know, tidying up. And I think in a scan pipeline, the only place you can start pushing your artistic sensibilities is through silhouette and shape language because everything else is really there for you already. And I have no idea where I'm going with this, by the way, Ryan. So anytime you want to step in, that's all good. <laughs> it hits with the general theme, which is we talk about this actually in the boot camp, is that the future of almost any art at this point is procedural at one level or another because it's just another way of saying it. it's just an algorithm. It's going to be machine learning. There's going to be all that. I don't know. Have you seen the... Um, have you seen the the deep fakes? Have you seen these? Oh god, yeah. Um, the uh, yeah, the, the Stallone's Terminator one, for instance. Yeah. And the uh, Joe Rogan recently as voice. Yeah, his voice yeah. was completely cloned. That was terrifying, wasn't it? Uh huh. So you're a realist artist. I'm a realist artist. And I was looking at your Twitter the other day, and uh, or was it your Twitter or your Facebook? I can't remember, but it's like anyone that believes realistic art in games is easy because you're just copying. Can explain it deleted, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hugs. <laughs> excellent, excellent. You know, but at the same time, where are we going? Because if you're looking yeah. at this, they're doing a better job of this than ILM's doing with their digital face uh, in Star Wars. Yeah, it, it's, it's terrifying. I mean, I, I, I've put a lot of thought into this, and it came a lot off the back of the work I was doing for Battlefield 1, because the problem we were finding, I did a lot of live work once, but I didn't do anything for the Battlefield 1 shipped disc. I was working on the live ops afterwards, and we were having this problem where everything that had been scanned and done looked like a reenactor. It didn't look cinematic. It didn't look cool. It didn't look like Brad Pitt in Fury, for instance. It wouldn't, because that was World War II, this is World War One. but there aren't that many good World War One films out there at the moment. And there's a definite disconnect. People don't seem to understand that when Brad Pitt is in World War II uniform, he's not in World War II uniform. Yeah, that guy. He's in essentially something that's been tailored to perfectly fit his style and shape. And the reason that Brad Pitt gets paid a lot of money is because he happens to look really good on camera and have the right shape. The Rock, for instance. How many people walk around looking like The Rock? He gets a lot of money for being that exact right shape. So... We had this sort of situation where realistic uniforms and actual army surplus uniforms are designed to be one size fits as many as possible. There's no subtlety, there's no tailoring, there's no shape language to it. It's almost like, here's a, here's a sack, here's a gun, run off. So we started developing a pipeline where we actually got out of a Hollywood tailor for the Battlefield 5 stuff. Mm. And we had a wonderful woman called Jo at the Hollywood Costume Shop who actually did some work on Saving Private Ryan. So she was used to World War II stuff. And I got to do a day with them as well where we actually weathered and tailored the clothing. And then we were fitting that to specific mannequins. So we got this really cinematic look to it. So there was a lot more work we were doing outside of the scanning process, like to try and make sure that by the time we got something scanned, it had that cinematic quality rather than just looking like the $50 army jacket that we'd just bought off an army surplus store. We did a lot as well. It's the difference between a soldier and a warrior. Like, mm -hmm. if you pull up a picture of a soldier, if you pull up a picture of anyone in boot camp, okay, they kind of look a bit terrified in their uniform, don't they? If you then search tier one operator, like that dude with the beard, oh, there's a guy with a beard, he's famous for being a tier one operator. He looks like a warrior. And there's just a certain difference in the shape language and the way that his kit's put together and everything. And I mm -hmm. think AI is never going to get that. AI, you're going to type in soldier and it's going to give you a soldier. It's not going to give you something that's been curated to look awesome. It's not going to give you something that's been massaged or art directed or shape language slightly. Like um, with that Battlefield 1 guy, we pulled out his shoulders slightly. We shaped out his shoulders. His, originally, his original head was based on a scan. But then we took that scan and we just made him look a little bit more angry and a little bit more East London. Resculpted his arms as well from the base scan just to give him a little bit more in the forearms. Uh, and just overall amped him up slightly just to make him a little bit hyper real. And I think that's really where scanning needs to go now. I think we've got to the stage where the fidelity is not a problem. The, the actual technical side of it is not a problem. But people have been falling back too much on, well, this is real, so it must be right. Mm. Uh, I think we have to get away from that. How much scanning are you seeing in pipelines now versus, um, versus sculpting? It depends. Historical stuff, obviously, and modern military, you can buy that stuff so it's really easy to scan. The trick is when it's not available to be scanned. So when you're looking at fantasy or sci-fi realism, mm -hmm. or even some things that just don't scan well, like that rope, for instance, on this guy was actually made in Marvelous Designer. Oh, really? uh, yeah, all I did was took a strip, wrapped it around his body about 100 times, 
Mm -hmm. uh, then put the internal line down it, change that internal line to a spline in max, and then pass deformed a rope texture across it. So the whole thing was just done in MD, but just so that it looked kind of realistic. Because trying to scan a rope like that, it just ends up with a bunch of holes in it, and it's a right mess. And it's the cleanup would have destroyed everything that made it look like a rope, essentially. Fair enough, because of the resolution. Yeah, exactly, and because of the fibers as well. So they're all flyaway, so the, the scan would have captured those fibers, and it just would have been a mess. Mm. What about faces? Facial scanning. If you can get the right actors, then yeah, awesome. But most of the time with a, with a good face scan, you've got to be, A, know what you're doing with a face to get the cleanup right. I've seen a lot of people take a facial scan and then destroy the subtleties and the nuances and the secondary and tertiary forms with bad cleanup for a start. And after that, you really sometimes still need to massage the heads. Like all the heads we did for the Turning Tides of Battlefield 1, we took the existing scans, but we sculpted into them all just to make them a little bit more gritty and a little bit more cinematic. Going back to the Brad Pitt analogy, there's like a million people who don't look like Brad Pitt, but there's a million people who don't get paid a lot of money to be photographed as well. So you really want to try and make these people look cool. And sometimes some of the scans, especially if your budget doesn't allow for like really cool looking people, because most of the time you're going to use a casting company and you might pick like 20 Caucasian males, for instance, and they'll send you back a bunch of shots. And if you, you push for time, you just go, yeah, one, three, five, seven, nine, fine, whatever. So having the ability to go in afterwards and just like massage them a little maybe is, I think, important still. So what are we looking for now? If somebody's listening to this and they want to be a character artist, and there's a ton of people here live right now that are in either the character artist boot camp or the character artist course over at GAI, what do they need to master? And, and my mode of, of thinking on this is I'm always looking for what are the triggers, the hiring triggers, right? Like what are the things that if you have this in your portfolio, somebody's going to be like, yes, I can use you. I think modern scan pipelines are really tricky because not a lot of people outside the industry have access to the sort of quality of scans that we get inside the industry. Right. So it's very difficult to get experience with scan cleanup. I mean, I don't see many tutorials on how to actually deal with a scan data properly on a character basis either. I mean, there's a lot of photogrammetry for environments, but I think it's something that's possibly currently missing out there. So I think really you just got to go back and look at the fundamentals because everything else has to be taught in-house. So as long as these people can texture quite realistically, because a lot of the stuff we did on Battlefield 1 and Battlefield 5, we completely retextured from the scan. If they can do that still, if you've still got a good sense of anatomy, shape, portion, and language, because you're still going to have to look at these things and say, it's right, but does it look cool? And that's important. So having that eye slightly developed so that you, know, you can look at good silhouette and good shape, I think is really important. And the only other thing I'd say really in a portfolio, if you're looking for it, just A to Z. If speed sculpting is your thing, that's awesome. But if you haven't got any finished game art in there, then I'm, I'm genuinely not interested as a, as a game artist. If you want to be a collectible sculptor, perfect. That's going to be awesome because you never need to texture anything. But if you want to be a game artist, you really need the, to, to see the full process, just to see that people have followed the whole thing through. Totally. I get that. That's actually one of the big things I've focused on the last years. Because, you know, I've been teaching for a while. I've been sharing pipelines. But I noticed that people just went to a certain level. But then those who went all the way, like one of the guys who taught me this right away was Niles Rush. And this guy, he just spent six months on one character. And that one character got him a job. Mm -hmm. Everybody here has heard that. Then there's also Vitaly, you know, Vitaly Bolgarov. Back in the early days when I worked at Pixelogic, Vitaly was like very important to Pixelogic. So we were talking all the time and trying to see what kind of features he needed, things like that. And Vitaly had a similar story. He worked on one character for six months, and that one character got him a job at Blizzard. Was that his Cami? I don't know the Cami one. Uh, I'm probably saying the name wrong. I remember it was a street fighter. I remember he did a gorgeous Street Fighter 2 character there. No, it was a robot, the angel. There's so much of his work out now, so I don't know exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's well, before this one. I remember that one. Yeah, that was uh, that was a tutorial he did for Nomon years back, wasn't it? I watched that one. Yeah, and it was right. Uh, it was the one he did right before that, and uh, so it was an angel. But like, it's gone right I, now. Oh, I think I remember. Yeah, I do remember white plastic finishing as well because it was like a robotic angel, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that one model got him a job. So. You know, along those lines, it takes basically, if I understand you correctly, it's having an eye. So you're looking to see if somebody's trainable, right? Yeah. 
and that they finish that they have the skill set so they finish the whole thing exactly that's okay. that's primary it's like you only get good at this by repetition and if you're stalling three quarters of the way through the process then you're never going to get good at the end of it you're never going to get good at the polish you're never going to get good at the tweaking you're never going to get good at the the final 20 percent that pushes a character over the edge you know what do you yeah. say to people who are like but i've been on this for a week now i'm I, i'm done with this character i should move on <laughs> oh sweet summer child <laughs> well if you're in production okay then yeah sure you spent a week on it get on with it but if you're looking at this piece getting you into the industry then really how long is too long if this is your calling card if this is the way you're presenting your art to the world then surely there's no limit on how long it's going to take i mean it wasn't good art is never finished it's just abandoned mm-hmm yeah, and I think that's very much the same, especially with your portfolio work. I mean, be realistic, okay? If you've been making, I'm going to go back to boots here because I love boots. <laughs> if you've been making a pair of boots for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, okay, possibly gone a little bit too far and you're not getting enough bang for your buck. Be sensible, you know? Remember, some studios spend two months on a hairstyle. So, so really, how long is too long when it's people's window into your skills and ability? Yeah, that's a great point. There's one devil's advocate position to take on that, which is, shouldn't I be able to do it in a couple of weeks? Is there something wrong with me if it's taking me six months? Because that's the other part of the self-talk. Well, it's it's one of those things. It's like, yes, if you're doing it for the 20th, 30th, 40th time, and it's still taking you six months, you should probably evaluate your workflow. Maybe there's some corners you can cut. Maybe your pipeline's not quite as streamlined as it should be. But if this is your first time and you've got to take into account learning, developing your artistic eye and the fact that you're going to go back over everything at least five times because you're still getting to grips with what it is that, that makes a character, then I think six months is more than fair. I mean, production environment, sure. By the time you hit as a senior, you should have made, I'm going to guess, several hundred characters in your career by this point. So if you don't know the most efficient way to do a thing, maybe you need to make more characters. But when you're in your first 10 or 20, this is still a, a voyage of discovery. This is still you figuring out how you work as an artist. You're figuring out what your strengths are. You're figuring out what workflows work for you. I mean, this isn't like heart surgery. There's not a certain defined way to actually make a character. You know, People are still coming up with new and interesting workflows and scenarios now. I mean, the only caveat to that, though, is Marvelous Designer. That's an algorithm, not a software. You give it what it wants, it will be nice. If you don't, it will turn into a ball of spikes. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be pain. You don't drag measurement yeah. in that program, it's just like, okay, all hell. Yeah, exactly. Marvelous Designer is an algorithm. There's like a million ways, right, to, to make a model in Max. There's one way to make a good pair of trousers in Marvelous. <laughs> if you don't do it that way, you're just in for a world of hurt. But essentially, yeah, it's like, You've got to remember, you have to take your time to learn these things and evaluate stuff. And if it's taking you six months, well, as long as you feel justified in that, yes, I have done six months of learning on this piece, then awesome. If you feel like, you know, you only did a month's worth of learning and the rest of the time you were just rotating it and putting lights on it and trying to see if it looked cool, you know, when you, when you get close to the end of a work then you get tired and you're just like, I'm just going to rotate this model around for a little while and hope it gets better. <laughs> then, yeah, maybe you should stop and rethink. So... How important is anatomy? How do you think about anatomy as a character Ooh. artist? Honestly, I don't think I know enough about it. And I don't think I'll ever know enough about it. Uh, I think it's, as a character artist, it's kind of fundamental. It's the backbone and the structure of essentially everything we do. Admittedly, in a, in a work environment, you're not going to get that many opportunities, especially in a scan pipeline, to play with anatomy. But... That means that when you do, it's going to be fleeting and you better be on point because you're dealing with scan data and realism. So it's something you should always be working on and always be trying to enforce, even if your day job doesn't call for it too much. It is honestly still, I think, fundamental. It's, a, it's as fundamental as color theory. It's like, you know, you know when, when you're texturing and two colors look goofy together and people who don't even study anatomy will always be able to tell you when a body looks weird. My wife is brilliant at it. She can look at something I'm sculpting and she just goes, that's nice, do it again. <laughs> it's one of those things that's just, yeah, for a character artist, it's fundamental. It's like 
I can't even give a parallel for environment art as to how important anatomy is. I, I, I guess it's like understanding that the sky is blue. You can make the sky whatever color you want, but unless you make it the right color, people are going to go, it's wrong. And they don't have to have an understanding of, of how clouds form. They just know. Makes sense. I remember actually in a class we had with Dylan Cole, he was teaching concept, he's teaching painting. And he talked about how clouds have anatomy and how they have a down plane and up and how he painted them. And I was like, I just never thought about clouds as having anatomy. Kind of blew me away. But yeah. along these lines, like at what point do you need to get on with it? So really what I'm asking here is like somebody's a character artist and I kind of feel like anatomy's it's a potential trap for people as well because you can fall into that and just spend years trying to get good at it. So when we're doing this, what do we say? How do we think about this that keeps us focused on producing work? Because it doesn't matter how much anatomy you have if you don't finish work, right? Yeah, I think the key thing to do with anatomy is studies. Just small studies and sketches a lot of the time and frequently. Pick a body part work on that part maybe in your spare time like lunch breaks lunch crunches is really yeah. good you know pick pick maybe the forearm lunch crunch on a forearm for a week and at that time do one a day if you can and get that out of your system and then you bring that back into your whole body of work afterwards i don't think you can approach anatomy as like here's a whole person let's try and do a complete a i can't say that word a crochet <laughs> in one hit because it's it's super daunting I've seen your anatomy model, right? You know, all the names of all the things, that's massively impressive in itself, let alone knowing the shape, the insertion, and the origin of all of them. That's terrifying. So breaking with more chunks, you know? <laughs> Literally, just like, break it down, understand that little piece, take that back into your base knowledge. It's something that's gonna take you a lifetime to master, and I, therefore I don't think rushing it makes any sense at all. Understand the bigger points first. Get an idea of flow and rhythm to start with. Get an idea of like major muscle groups and just like you know the, the the general flow of muscles, the way the quads fall down towards the knee and then the calf and comes back and makes that beautiful S curve. Worry about that first, then start going to minutiae. Like you know all the tendons on the forearm, they can come secondary to getting a good forearm shape, I think. And that's just constant study, but studying small bite-sized chunks. Is it held against me if I don't have well-sculpted forearms? Of course not. <laughs> of course. You Yes. Your peers will hate you forever. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Obviously, it depends on your position, your standing, and your ability on other things. I think as long as you bring everything up at the same sort of level at the same sort of time, as long as you don't rest on your laurels and be like, you know, I can do this bit of the body really well, so I'll just hide that bit. I'll just fudge that bit. I'll just put long gloves on everybody because I spent all my time learning how the bicep <laughs> and the tricep works. Yes. Yeah, I've seen, I've done that. I've personally done that as well. The brawl character I did ages ago for Polycount got 2000 and uh, something. Yeah, I, I did this trial and I understood how, I couldn't understand, figure out forearms, so I just put these massive gloves on him and hoped nobody had noticed. God, so hacky. Uh, <laughs> So I think as long as people can see, you know, developing your skills as a whole. I mean, I know a guy who's an amazing, amazing facialized, does some really, really good likenesses, but then his bodily anatomy falls really short because when you look at it compared to how good he is with a face, you're like, dude, dude, really, really stop faces for a little while, work on some body. <laughs> yeah, I get that, you know, and I have certain things I'm good at and then the weakness is just like, yeah. You yeah. Know. So is it important to be well-rounded, do you think, still, or specialized? Because that's kind of one of the next things that we could talk about in terms of the industry. Is the industry does seem to be moving to specialization, like film. It does. But at the same time, you've also got a burgeoning indie community and a lot more independent studios now as well. So mm. although the bigger companies are getting like you know more and more specialized, there's still the smaller and mid-level companies where you'll be expected to do most, if not everything. I think the most important thing to do is pick something that you enjoy doing and that fascinates you, and then everything else will follow from there. Like me, I dabble in stylized stuff, but quite frankly, I'm a bit useless at it because my heart's not in it. I like to know how things work. Mm. I like problem solving in a sort of industrial design kind of style. I like being, okay, this is like this because of this. 
and I, I have to have this very much form follows function mentality, I guess. I'm, I'm more industrial design in my characters in that, yeah, if the form doesn't fit the function, it's wrong to me. I can't just make something look pretty for the sake of it looking pretty. My brain doesn't work like that. And I, I feel that the guys that excel at stylized stuff got amazing shape language. It's like Blizzard shoulder pads. Blizzard shoulder pads are ridiculous. They'd never work. They'd wear a million tons, but they look so cool. I don't trust pretty, right? Like I like <laughs> to know how something works. I don't trust this whole like just make it pretty thing. Yeah, I, I'm the same. I'm like very much like, okay, what's its function? Okay, well, if it was made of this material, then it wouldn't be that big because that's stupid. But at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, though, some of the some of the most amazing stylized work I've seen recently, like um, the guy who did that Mordred for the King Arthur challenge, mm. that was beautiful. That was a stunning piece of work. But at the same time, looking at the armor and just going too thick, <laughs> I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, too caught up in realism. So yeah, it's it's a case of just like find what you dig. Find what floats your boat, excel at that, and then don't necessarily worry about specialization at first because when you, when you first get into the industry anyway, you'll be doing whatever your senior, your lead, or your mentor tells you. So it's not so important to be well-rounded yet. Okay. Makes sense. Tell me about Shop Seth Mart. Ah, yes. Okay. That was uh, Evil Dead. Have you seen Evil Dead? Yes. Okay, good, 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 good. That was that was literally just something I did for giggles. I put up a, an insert brush, a German World War II insert brush uh, on art station, and I made two whole sales out of it. Yes! It's nearly $6, you know. By this time next year, I'm retiring. Is <laughs> <laughs> it on your store? Yes. Yeah, there it is. There it is. Look at that. Amazing. Yeah, so Shop Seth Mark was basically a corruption of an Evil Dead thing because Bruce Campbell, who's the main dude from Evil Dead, he works in a in a shop called Smart, and their slogan is Shop Smart, Shop Smart. So I just corrupted and stole that essentially. So thank you for the plug. I might make three sales now. Yes. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I read. Did I read you ran a half marathon by accident? Was that, uh, <laughs> was that real? <laughs> That's, that's unfortunately true, yes. So I got drunk one night. Now, a lot of my stupid decisions start with I got drunk one night. To give you an example, I got really drunk one night and applied to Infinity Ward. I was living in the UK at the time. And I, I walked into my wife. I drank half a bottle of vodka. I walked in, into the living room where my wife was. I said, how do you feel about Los Angeles? She's like, what have you done? And I was like, right, I've applied for a job, but don't worry, I'll never get it. <laughs> Yeah, so there I was six months later living in Los Angeles. Anyway, so, so um, yeah, I, I, did a, I, I did a half marathon by accident. It wasn't intentional. Um, I, I'd been reading this book, which is, I can't even remember the name of it now, but it's by a guy, he basically discusses barefoot running and how you have to change your gait for it. And he does it through the context of this Amazonian marathon with a bunch of ultra runners that some guy called the White Horse, who's an ex-boxer who lives in the Amazonian. This book is strange. But he organizes this ultra marathon. It's about ultra marathons and it's about how barefoot running evolved and how running shoes are bad for you and how you should change your gait. And I, I'd been reading this and I got to the end of it and I, and I had a few beers. And the next morning I was going for a run. I lived in New Zealand at the time, a little place called here. And I had this like 5K track that I used to do regularly anyway, which was just out around the bay, down to this little fishing shed and back again. A little bit of elevation up and down. And uh, this, this one particular morning I was like, right, how long will it take me to change my running gait? Let's find out. So I started, and about two and a half, three hours later, I'd done 21 kilometers. <laughs> oh, my God. oh, man. Oh, my knees were destroyed after that as well. It was glorious because I, you know, yeah. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about that because my wife and I started picking that up, and our knees were the first thing to go. Dude, it's, it's that elevation change. It's not running uphill that kills you, it's running downhill. Yes, uh, we have a huge hill down uh, here uh, at the top of the world where the little trail, and it, yeah, it just kills you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that downhill running, man, that will destroy you because you're falling heavy on your heel as well. That'll do your knees in. So yeah, that, that did happen. I mean, nowadays I just, I, I run the occasional 10K, but I haven't done anything as stupid as another half marathon yet. Not on purpose anyway. But I want to get in and talk about the transformation that you went through because you went through a huge transformation. When was it? Was must have been about two years ago. I think I saw that on Facebook. 
when I was a large lad. Yeah. Yeah, and then I, I want to talk about that because I think like that was really one of the most inspirational things, and it was right around the same time I was doing some lifting and some weight. I was on the other side. I was super skinny, and I just couldn't change my body. Like it just stayed skinny. Like I'm five Dude, ten and 140 said, pounds. You should have said you could have had some of mine. I was giving it away freely. I I, I would if there was a system, I would have gladly taken it. <laughs> The fly kind of thing where we both get into the teleportation chamber. Yes. yes. <laughs> so tell me about that because just doing that is insanely, there's a lot involved in that. Oh, you went yeah. through a massive transformation. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, okay. So so just for the, for the listeners who, who never saw the stupid photograph, I used to be about 305 pounds and I dropped in the end to 198. That, that was over Congrats. a period of of a year or two. Yeah, that was that was that was kind of silly. So it was yeah, we, we hit Los Angeles and um at this point I'm a like twenty, thirty a day smoker and I can't even run across a road without getting out of breath. So there's a guy at Infinity Ward called Donovan, Donovan Keel. Dude's a mountain, seriously. He's he's got into physique bodybuilding. He got into it a little while ago. When you play the next modern warfare, there's a really muscular Russian dude, that's Donovan Scand. Oh nice. Seriously, dude's built. And he, he let me come to the gym with him. And um, I started doing a little bit of lifting. And I found very quickly that I was getting more of an exercise, deloading the machines after him so that I could use them. <laughs> nice. Serious, I was lifting more weight by just trying to get the machine down to a weight that I could lift. And then my darling wife found this thing called CrossFit, which apparently everybody who does CrossFit talks about. On Memorial Day, they do this thing called the Murph. So here I am, 39 years old. At this point, I've actually managed to get down to the quite sprightly 286 pounds. <laughs> so, so by now, I'm practically a physique model. <laughs> yeah, the, the Murph's coming. And my other half, she's like, I'm doing the Murph. And I'm like, what's the Murph? And she's like, it's a one-mile run followed by 100 pull-ups, 200 press-ups, 300 air squats, and another mile run. Uh, like, like you had me at 100 pull-ups. You had, like, what? Yeah, exactly. It's 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 after a guy called Michael Murphy. You know, um, is it Lone Survivor? He got killed, basically, bless him, uh, in the line of duty in Afghanistan. He was a SEAL, and it was his favorite workout. So on Memorial Day, it's this CrossFit thing where everyone does the Murph. Mm. So I said to my other half, yeah, sure, I'll come and do it with you. Um, I didn't really think it through. <laughs> And yeah, I, I actually had to ask, so how was like, okay, so, so do push-ups. And I was like, how do you do a push-up? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was heavily modified. I did a one-mile row on a rowing machine, and then I did 100 ring rows, which is like gymnastics rings, and you set a, sit at a sort of angle, and you just pull yourself up on those. 200 push-ups on my knees, 300 air squats, which I managed to do even though my knees nearly collapsed, and a one-mile row out. And it took me nearly an hour and a half, and I ended up like... I'm sitting outside afterwards in a puddle of sweat, crying to myself, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> so, uh, why'd you do it again? Stupidity, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, that was my first workout. It took me two weeks to get back to CrossFit. And after that, I, I started working out more. And then I, I slowly brought the nutrition into it. Murph 3, I did two of them back to back. So I did two with a 15-minute gap in between. I did the second one. Where did the, I, I ran the miles, obviously, at this point, and did the fourth mile with a 14-pound weight vest. And the only reason I got a 14-pound weight vest was because I wanted the 20-pound one, which the men have, and my coach was like, nope, you get the girl vest. <laughs> nice. Yeah, bless him. So I did that again this year, and we did the double again, which is really, really stupid. But, yeah, that just basically lit a fire under my ass, essentially. It, it became, it was a very slow and gradual thing. I started off working out, then I started off eating a little better, which obviously got me working out more, which then led to eating better, which then led to better recovery, um, so that I was able to do things more often. And by the end of it, I was doing five days a week in the gym and then jogging the, the mile and a half home after the gym every morning and then going to work. And it honestly changed my mental attitude towards almost everything. It's like... Night and day now, once I think you start bringing something else into your life that requires discipline, that discipline kind of follows through with everything. Mm. How's that affected your art? I have boundaries now. I'm more like, okay, I'm doing this right now. Rather than turning on the PlayStation or, or chucking the telly on, I'm, I'm a big fan of RuPaul's Drag Race at the moment, by the way. I've got to admit, that's my gooey pleasure. It's out there now, but it's true. Yes, Queen. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've seen all 11 series now. It's terrifying. But it just means that now when it's art time, it's art time because I understand more. I think before I did it because it was fun. But then when it wasn't fun, when there was something that I was like hiding from, like forearms, should we say, I, I didn't have the determination to push through. Nowadays, it's like, okay, you better master this bit. You better get used to this bit. And I kind of enjoy the grind side of it now more. Mm -hmm. I, I have a more focus. I know that through repetition of something I don't like, it will become something I do like. It's like I used to bloody hate running, and then I busted up my shoulder so I couldn't lift for a while. So for six months, I just ran. And then, yeah, obviously, I ended up doing a drunken half marathon. <laughs> but I think that's followed through. And it's really, especially as artists, we kind of sometimes have kind of dark periods, should we say? Mm -hmm. Sometimes stuff gets on top of us. And for the silliest of things, like you, you'll be working on something and something's not going right and it'll put you into a mood and then that mood will mean that you don't touch it for a few days. And working out helps me get over that and through that. It gives me that little endorphin kick every morning that just means, okay, I can cope with this because I just did something stupid with the heavyweight. So everything else is relatively simple. Nice. I like that. And I think like as artists, we're creatives. So we work from a much more emotional perspective. It's not all business, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not about the money. It's about, you know, the art. And so we bring that emotional component to it. But the dark side of that emotional component is all that self-talk and whether or not I'm good or whether or not something's going well. And then whether or not I feel like I should work on this piece. What, yeah. what do you do now when those moods hit you? So exercise is one tool, I imagine. Yeah, I give myself a single day to wallow in my self-pity. I allow that. It's like, okay, this is natural. And people are like, oh, you shouldn't be depressed. You should smile more. You should be happy. You should be like, no, be however you feel on that given day, but don't let it consume you. Get through that day, wallow in it as much as you want, be as miserable as you want, because it's as natural a human emotion as being bloody ecstatic. And I think you need both in order to actually fully experience life. But after that day, Get off your ass and do something. Make it something small. Doesn't matter what it is, okay? Go out for a walk, go for a run, do a sketch, paint, sculpt, just something small, something throwaway, something, what's the word I'm looking for? Something inconsequential, something that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But just do it. And over, you know, over the next day or two, you'll find that your mood will alleviate and you'll start picking up and you've got to pull yourself out of it, many, or for me anyway. Everyone's experience is different, but for me personally, I have to pull myself out of it. I, I know that I'm, I'm the only person that's going to be able to change my mood, so you better get on with it. There's a, a guy called Scroobius Pip, a UK rapper, mm -hmm. and he's got a song, and one of the lines in it, how hard is it to say you're going to be in a good mood and just be in a good mood? And it's like equal parts the hardest thing ever and the simplest thing ever. And that's really what it comes down to for me. So when I'm having a really bad day, I'll just have that bad day, but then know that tomorrow, it's always in the back of my mind that tomorrow I'm going to get back on the horse and I'm going to get on with it. And whatever it is that's making me feel like shit today will make me feel like shit tomorrow, but I'm going to fight it. But today I'll have my day and I'll be miserable and I'll drink and it'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've been married 24 years. Yeah. Is it 24, 25 now? It's, oh, thanks for putting me on the spot, Ryan. That's awesome. Cheers. <laughs> Sorry, I threw him under the bus. My have credentials been, have been revoked. Sorry. Okay, you're okay. No, no I, I've been with the same lady for, for 24 and a half years. We've been married. Oh, let me get this right now. Oh, we've been married 12, I think. Oh, I've got raised eyebrows. I thought it was 2007. 2002. Wow. You've put up with me for that long. Oh, Mary. Okay, yeah. So, so Hell, Hell's actually, Hell actually married me 17 years ago. She should have murdered me. She'd have been out by now. <laughs> yeah, 24 years. What's the secret, man? That's a long time. That's fantastic. Congratulations, by the way. Why? Well, thank you very much, sir. Because um, you have kids too. That's not just a matter of just like, hey, I'm I married. And... We've got three kids. We got um, my eldest is now living in New Zealand. She's just about to segue to Australia. Yeah, she's 23. And I've got my 22 and my 21-year-old are both in the UK. My 22-year-old is studying to be a teacher. And my 21-year-old my is currently volunteering and looking into animal care. And I'm not cutting animals up, obviously. No, petting them and loving them. 
Yeah, she wants to go and bother pandas. Apparently, she wants to get learn how to to treat endangered species. All right, I, I do have this discussion with her that you know the only way you make pandas not endangered is by making them delicious because cows aren't going extinct anytime soon. But apparently, this is a really bad opinion to have. So, but there's a I, I get where you're going with that. There's some truth. It's, it's, it's a logical argument, but it's not really an argument you want to have. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the secret then? Because you've got three kids. So it sounds yeah. like you guys had three kids, like one after the other for three years, and then we're yeah. like, all right, screw this, we're done with this. Yeah, there was there was a certain level of chaos, should we say? Yeah. <laughs> and leave that. At that. <laughs> uh, my first child, like I can't even remember life before my first child, really, because oh, right. I don't even know what that was, what the freedom of being, you know, not Just a dad was. Being able to use the floor as a storage area. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. You can put things on the floor and nobody cared. Now you, you get kids, you put something on the floor, it's like, oh my God, they're going to kill themselves or break it. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden, you know, the benefit of elevation becomes apparent. Suddenly you realize that shelves are the best thing you can have because you can put things out the way of the children. Yeah. Then, then as hell says, the kids learn to climb them and then obviously, yeah, bad. Did the kids travel with you? Yeah, up until Alana went to university. She didn't come to the States with us, but the other two guys did. So yeah, they are citizens of the world, I guess you'd say, really. Um, whether they wanted to be or not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I come from quite a nomadic family. I had done, oh, 11 schools by the time I was 16. Ah, uh, man, I feel for you. You beat me, actually. I don't think I've had anybody beat me. By the time I was 21, I had moved 24 times. But not but, 11 schools. It was like one, two, three, four, five, six. It was seven, seven schools by 18, and then right. colleges. It was crazy. Wow. You destroy me on the number of times moving, but I beat you on the schools because some places I went to two different schools. Why so much? You know what? I don't know. One day I'll ask my parents. I'll be like, what? What? <laughs> what? What's up? What gives? What did you do this for? Exactly. Was it, was it, I don't know. I think it was because every time we moved somewhere new, the villagers found out and they'd sort of come to our front door with forks <laughs> and torches. And then we'd have to move again and dad would continue his experiments and everything would be fine for about six months. <laughs> yeah. Did your parents support your, your art? Yeah. In, in strange ways. Like I was the kid with a pencil behind my ear when I was born yeah. and I used to draw a hell of a lot. And my parents supported me by giving me watercolor lessons. So I'm actually a classically trained watercolor painter. Really? That's like my favorite yeah. medium, but it's like the most insane to control. Oh, it's, it's manic. Yeah, I used to be a specialist on sort of like heavy board wet on wet, which is like about as chaotic as you can get. So you, yeah. you know, just totally, yeah, you get like 340, 380 GSM paper, mm -hmm. wet the whole damn thing down, and then just like paint skies and, and cloud formations and stuff like that. Yeah, and just let it go chaotic. And uh, I repaid them by going to college and painting six foot by eight foot oil paintings of slabs of meat. <laughs> so yeah college was I, I got heavily into conceptual art I'm, I'm a big fan of the journey like there was a guy I, I read an article about a guy called Jeff Coons mm -hmm. yeah and he just blew my mind the idea that this guy could actually make a career out of essentially just getting other people to paint for him and signing it it's like it's amazing. He, he was like the lord excuse my language but he was the lord of bullshit as far as I was concerned anybody who convince people to buy his work from that. So I got heavily into conceptual stuff. And it was also around about the same time that I uh, met a guy at a college, I believe it was Jared Crane, and he could draw. He could really draw. The guy was phenomenal. And here was me, born with a pencil behind my head, drawing every day, okay, obsessively. And when you're like that big fish in your little pond, you're like, yeah, I'm awesome. He humbled me to the point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so, so yeah, I took up sculpture in college and after the cow painting fiasco, that was when I started in sculpture and sort of like abandoned two dimensions. I <laughs> really? Yeah, genuinely. The guy humbled me to the point where I was very pragmatic about it. I was like, I am not. I've been drawing almost every day that I can remember of my life, and I am not a shade on this guy. This guy's uh, amazing. This guy will get the job. I better find another outlet for my creativity. So I, so I found sculpture instead and found that my brain worked better in three dimensions. Yeah, I love sculpture. I have a similar story. I went to, I was training in PAFA and I was focused on painting. And then I saw a watercolor exhibition by John Singer Sargent. And I thought, oh. that's it. Like, <laughs> yeah. like it's been done. 
So, and it, yeah, not only has it been done, it's been done a hundred freaking years ago. Yeah, so, ring the bell. That's it. It's over. Yeah. So everybody stop. Just stop. Mm -hmm. You're done. You failed. <laughs> and then, you know, I focus on sculpture after that. I, I worked with Stuart Feldman and I, and that was my focus when I went to San Francisco. And uh, yeah, I guess it all worked out actually. My job at Pixelogic was sculpting. So. Yeah. You're one of the like the godparents of digital art, technically, aren't you? Really? <laughs> I don't know like, about that. Over. I don't know. You, I'm not going to say godfather because that's that's got mafia connotations, obviously. But <laughs> certainly one of the godparents, I think. I, I, you know, with your, what was it? You were working with Pixelogic right when they were like five guys in an office or something. Yeah, it was literally. It was two people in an office, and Ofer was in San Francisco. And that actually, that gets to the last question I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, in terms of your career, how much of it do you think is talent and how much of it do you think is work, actual oh, work? Yeah. And by talent or luck, like, what is your thought on this? I, I, I understand you completely, and I, I have a sentence already made up for this. Like, people often say, you know, is it, is it like talent or work? And I say, well, you're so talented. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I've got a talent for working hard. I love that. That's really all it comes down to. You know, it's, it's I, I'm a big believer it's repetition, repetition, repetition. Hone your eye, hone your skill, hone your craft. And the only way you're going to do that is by doing it again and again and again. That makes sense. All right, Seth, man, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's super late. It's probably like 1230 there now. It is, yeah. It's it's, it's tomorrow. It's, it's actually tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I'm in the future. I'll, I'll let you know how the rest of the evening goes later. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, man, and for sharing this and, um, no, and for being here with us. Thank you very much for your time, Ryan. Guys, thank you very much for turning up and listening to me waffle on like a manic old man. And, uh, yeah, if anyone ever wants to run a half marathon with me, uh, no. Quite frankly. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Terrible idea. It hurts. Don't do Not it. until the new knees come in. <laughs> new knees. I, I want AI knees. That's, AI that's what I want out of it. <laughs> All right, take care. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. Have a good afternoon, man. Uh, you too. All right, see you guys. All right, thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. It really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.